The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, today we're going to do, we have always done it this way, questioning dogma and trauma. So today, first we've got joining us is Dr. Zaza, who's board certified in general surgery and surgical critical care, one of our awesome trauma surgery attendings joining us today. Um, and then again, uh, first time on the pod. And then uh, Dr. Taylor Walks is joining us again, one of our uh, third year EM residents. And then I'm Will Appleby, one of the air care CCPs and educator for air care. So welcome, guys. Glad you can join us today. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. So I'm uh, pretty pumped about this. I'm not going to lie. Um, something a lot of us have talked about doing before. So what we want to do is talk about some of the, the general misconceptions or old school medicine, specifically with trauma. Um, and some of the stuff we've all got taught maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago that's kind of stuck in textbooks and hasn't come out yet, but may not be the best thing for our patients long term. Um, and a lot of literature and evidence-based medicine has proven that's not the case. <clears throat> so one of the first things we're going to talk about is getting normal numbers. So when I talk about normal numbers, I'm talking about blood pressure specifically. So everybody needs to have a blood pressure 120 over 80, right? Every time? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm just going to open it up. What are y'all's thoughts on permissive hypotension? How you use it? How do you feel about it? Do is it a common part of your practice or is it only specific cases? Yeah, no. So I think what can make this difficult um, is that um, people always like to have like a concrete thing to shoot for. Um, people always like to say 120 over 80 or map of 65 or a specific number. Um, and with permissive hypotension, um, there isn't necessarily a specific number to shoot for. And I think that in itself makes people uneasy. Um, because, uh, depending on the case, it, it may mean a different number. Um, and so I think, uh, having to first accept the fact that there is not going to be a specific number. Like when we say permissive hypotension, we're not saying, oh, well, instead of 120 over 80, we're shooting for 90 over 60. Like, it's not that simple. Um, so, um, I don't know. To me, that's probably what makes it a little difficult and makes some people a little uneasy with permissive hypotension from the get-go. Yeah, I agree. Permissive hypotension is one of the more difficult concepts to teach because there are no concrete parameters um, and it takes a lot of clinical judgment and ongoing evaluation and reassessment to really um, uh, perform that concept. So the first thing is why do we do permissive hypotension? Right. What is the, the idea behind it? The idea is if you are bleeding, then allowing the patient to have a lower blood pressure will theoretically decrease the bleeding um, flow rate and until you hopefully can get uh, source control of the hemorrhage. So it really only applies in the very early um, period of resuscitation and evaluation until you figure out the source of bleeding, number one, and number two, uh, get some sort of hemorrhage control. So an example is someone who's shot in the leg and has a clear arterial injury, gets a tourniquet and gets that bleeding controlled. There's not a lot of room for permissive hypotension there. Um, 
really the target should be just enough to support the physiology until we get to the definitive um, hemorrhage control operation, procedure, whatever it is. And so in patients who are not intubated, not obtunded, not altered, it's very easy. Titrate to mental status, right? That's the easiest thing. As long as their brain is perfused, then you're good. There's absolutely no number. You can go as low as their physiology will allow you. Um, and that's the easiest one to, to do. It gets really tricky when you have a, especially blunt trauma patients that could have a brain injury and things like that, because now you're competing with permissive hypertension, but also preventing secondary injury, right? I'm trying to maintain um, cerebral perfusion pressure on top of it. Absolutely. And so unless there is hemodynamic instability, ongoing transfusion requirement, or a clear source of hemorrhage, a positive fast, things like that, then normal physiologic numbers should be pursued. Um, it really only applies when significant hemorrhage is suspected or known until we get hemorrhage control, and it's for non-compressible hemorrhage. So really, gun penetrating trauma to the chest and abdomen or blunt trauma with evidence of intrathoracic or intra-abdominal bleeding. Those are really the big two patient populations that benefit from permissive hypotension. It allows for lower um, volume of resuscitation um, even if you're giving blood products, it's still not benign. Um, definitely if you don't have the availability of blood products or if you have very limited blood products, then it becomes very important to avoid administering crystalloid. And that's where I think is the largest benefit is allowing hypotension versus administering crystalloid to support a blood pressure. That's when there is a like a definite detriment to the patient's physiology. Oh yeah. I always think of it kind of break it down to simple terms to me is it's pipes and fluid and so you've got a hole in the pipe how much pressure do you want to push out the pipe do you want a whole lot of pressure in the pipe so everything sprays out really really fast or if it's low like permissive hypotension or it's not going to shoot out near as much which absolutely. leads us to you don't have to use as much blood pressers every all, all the things absolutely i mean something again something like blunt trauma you know if it's a solid organ injury like a spleen or a liver a lot of that bleeding is venous and the lower the pressure is, the more you allow for clots to form. If you increase the pressure, you can dislodge clots that are already existing and um, allow that, once you decrease that arterial inflow, that venous pressure will decrease and will allow things to, to lower significantly in terms of the bleeding. So what's your strategy? Because I, I agree, you know, the easy thing is titrate to mental status. Um, but obviously sometimes we have these patients that are intubated What's your strategy when you can't use mental status as your as your parameter for permissive hypotension? Yeah, and that's that's where it gets really tricky, right? And you can ask different surgeons have different criteria. Um, if I am significantly worried about hemorrhage, then I'm shooting for a map of 50. That's really my limit. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I'm very expeditiously finding the source of hemorrhage and proceeding with, with intervention. For, it's very easy for me, right? Because once I see the patient, it takes very little time to decide if we need to be in the operating room or not and control the hemorrhage. So I'm only practicing permissive hypotension for less than 15 minutes, really. Um, we're not gonna go to the scanner with permissive hypotension. We're not gonna do all, any of these things. Once I've ruled out life-threatening hemorrhage, then I'm resuscitating to normal numbers to prevent secondary injury to the brain. It gets really tricky in the field. Um, so I, I'll be curious to 
know how you guys kind of approach that and, and yeah it's it gets real dicey um for us it's more of one it's maintaining perfusion best you can a lot of times sometimes we have real, we have a very fortunate here we can put art lines in so that that helps immensely because you start getting somebody that's got a really low blood pressure that cuff pressure ain't accurate ever um but it also depends on where their injury is right so they've got something abdominal in their chest that for moral art line which is maybe where you felt the pulse better may not be as accurate as you want it to be um a lot of times we kind of go some of the old school stuff of looking at cat refill, looking at their perfusion. What do they look like? Did they start with white feet? I mean, pale, 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 pale feet, or did we start with some color? Now we got color. We don't have color anymore. That kind of stuff kind of helps clue you in. It's the little subtle things. You just, you're trending that patient, training that assessment all the way through. Um, and then it's, as you said, judicious use of, what blood if you've got it or volume if you have to use it um as far as crystal woods or whatever to make sure that you're not making anything worse definitely um, not crystal yeah definitely not <laughs> if you i get it some people all they have is that and you got to give them like 250 cc's or whatever because you don't have any pressers or based off where you are but try to avoid it at all costs yeah. is my thing um for us it's like i said it's just old school assessment stuff that's a lot of it Absolutely. I mean, your clinical judgment is extremely important in those cases. And again, it's balancing how much do you think they're bleeding um, and, and how serious the injury is on how long your transport time is. And that's another how thing. How much product do you have available? We carry two and two. If I've got an hour trip, I look at it as that's one product every 15 minutes. So how do I make it? Is that going to sustain them long enough to where they can not get worse yeah. or too much worse or I know they're going to get worse but I don't want them to get too much yeah. worse kind of thing and again not to get too much into the weeds but it that's where using adjuncts becomes really important in those in those patients so administering calcium early on administering vasopressin early on um, all these adjuncts that support the physiology while minimizing the need for transfusion becomes very important to preserve those products and, and make sure they're, they're given over, you know, a longer period of time. And that's one thing I'm sure you've seen me do this in the trauma bay where I tell people to stop squeezing the blood in, right? If I know, if I still don't know where the hemorrhage is and the map is hovering around 50, I'm infusing product to support them, but I'm not pushing it in because that's going to, again, transiently increase the pressure dislodge whatever clot, cause more bleeding, and then it's, it, it runs out very quickly. So again, administering blood relatively slowly in those patients just to maintain a constant volume, kind of almost matching their rate of yeah. bleeding, um, which is impossible to assess, but you know you can see it just on their, on their blood pressure, especially if you have an A-line, then you can see, you know, you start with an A-line, their map was 65, then 60, then 55. Now you start infusing product at 70, you're gonna, back off lower your 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 flow rates just to kind of maintain that perfusion pressure and cardiac output that's something else you brought up especially about squeezing blood in even here where we have a really large blood bank we still have a limited supply of stuff Absolutely. so the more you slam it in the faster you're going to use it especially mm -hmm. make the heart i mean it's yeah, you have that downward spiral all of it especially if you're pushing in cold blood yeah. that's another one of my pet peeves is when we're doing massive transfusion on these patients and we think that we're doing them a favor by skipping the level one infuser um, and pushing the blood directly into them and you're just giving them cold product, you're making them cold and coagulopathic. So taking that extra 20, 30 minute even 
um, you know, 20, 30 seconds or a minute just to set it up. And, you know, you should hopefully have it ready um, before the patient gets there if you have a heads up. But just making it a practice to always use infusers. It frees up staff to do other stuff. It delivers a constant pressure. More, most important part of that infuser is the warming. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I wish there was more stuff on the market now to do it in transport. That's the only I wish I could bring a level one with me in the aircraft. Yeah. Um, so there's I, some on there, but they're um, we don't ha- we only have maybe one Belmont. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure they have a portable one that's smaller for transport. Yeah, we're looking at it. We're trying to figure um, out how to make those it are excellent because those are roller pumps and those can deliver extremely high flow rates. They're definitely the preferred route for most places that deal with patients um, who are, you know, trauma patients or shock patients in general, because you can deliver very high volumes and it's way less traumatic uh, to the product instead of just pure pressure. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, again, we're all going back to that trauma triad or now they're going to the uh, triangle. It used to be now it's diamond with talking about calcium adding too. So trying to prevent acidosis, coagulopathy. Um, hypothermia and then hypocalcemia. So, every when you think trauma in the back of my head, I always think those four. And as long as I can kind of combat those somehow, we're doing the right way. Absolutely. So that leads us kind of into we're talking about balanced resuscitation with blood. Um, so I've seen it a lot. I'm sure y'all have seen it a lot as well. Some facilities all they have is PRBCs, but I've seen even big facilities they just keep giving PRBCs. They don't do balanced resuscitation. Um, They've gotten, how many products have they gotten? I can't tell you, sitting in a trial bay. Oh, they've gotten eight, eight what? Eight PRBCs, so they got a lot of red cells. Cool, that's great. What about everything else? Um, what are y'all's thoughts on balanced resuscitation? Pretty well standardized across the board, I think, here, but. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to think about um, what is a patient losing when they bleed? They don't just bleed PRBCs. Um, and then what's the goal with resuscitating them? And I think the common one people think about with PRBCs is, right, that's your oxygen carrying capacity, but that does not provide you any uh, ability to provide any kind of hemostasis, um, which, you know, in these trauma patients, they're all bleeding from somewhere. Um, and so, um, you know, the three things you kind of think about are oxygen carrying capacity, which you are going to get from PRBCs, um, some sort of volume expander, uh, which you could get technically with anything that contains volume. Um, but then hemostasis, and I think that's where it gets left out and why balanced resuscitation is so important. Um, here, um, I, I personally don't have a lot of experience with whole blood just because it's not something we have offered here. I think you have more experience with that in your training. Um, but I think probably what is most people, at least in the state of Mississippi, are most familiar with is what we call one to one to one um, transfusion to one. To one. To one. Um, you know, and I think where that gets tricky is like you're saying these places that that maybe they only have PRBCs. Um, but uh, if you ask Dr. Zaza, he would probably tell you to give plasma before you give anything else. Um, so. Obviously, there's some stuff that, that whole blood is, is probably uh, the, if you want to call it gold standard. Uh, I know there's some limitations with how it's stored and thawed um, that, that can affect um, its use and, and cost as well. But, um, but I think just understanding, like you said, that, that you don't just bleed PRBCs is probably um, just the most common misconception that 
trauma patients bleed PRVCs. That's all they need. Um, especially, especially if you're at a facility that is not going to be providing the patient uh, source control, right? Um, you may not be at a place that has a surgeon um, that can provide source control. Um, and it may not be something as simple as putting up a tourniquet. Um, and so providing the patient with intrinsic means of providing their own hemostasis um, is pretty important. Absolutely. Uh, the value of balanced resuscitation is beyond questioning. It's been proven to be the gold standard by far. Um, even different ratios have been shown to be inferior, in, especially in, in hemorrhage control and obtaining hemostasis. Um, so in the original study, it was one to two to one versus yeah. one to one to one. Um, you know, proper and prompt trials. And um, it's all shown that the closer you are to whole blood, the better. Makes sense. Um, most trauma patients, I will argue, don't have an oxygen carrying capacity problem, right? We know that from critical care literature where patients have hemoglobins of seven and below, and they have no improved outcomes with increasing their hemoglobin. Right, so your body doesn't need much more than that amount of oxygen carrying capacity, provided you're oxygenating and you're you're saturating those hemoglobins to deliver. The problem becomes purely a volume issue, right? Um, for most patients, now you have the extreme cases of hemorrhage um, where you do have compromised oxygen delivery, and those patients are very hard to salvage unless they get to definitive source control very quickly. So we're talking about most of the patients that are salvageable and hemorrhage being the number one preventable cause of death and trauma. Uh, most of it is volume issue, right? So you get cardiac collapse because of low cardiac output and low preload. So having said that, um, if I have to choose blood, plasma, or platelets as my only resuscitation if I only have to choose one, it's gonna be plasma. Plasma is an excellent volume expander, right? It repairs the endothelial damage caused by trauma, provides clotting factors for clotting, um, and has secondary effects of you know preventing lung injury, having slightly better outcomes with traumatic brain injury, so on and so forth. Um, so it, it really saddens me when I see patients who get only blood. Um, it's hard for me to understand how even small facilities that um, have very small blood banking capability that can store blood, um, it's not that much harder to store fresh frozen plasma. It's got a very relatively long shelf life, needs very little equipment to thaw. I mean, they can do it at forward surgical fields. Um, you know, All over, I mean, we carry it yeah. today. So, um, so that, it, it, I think it's more of a, I don't think it's lack of um, capability. I think it's lack of understanding of it's important. Um, so just to go back a little bit, establish the hierarchy of, of resuscitation products. Number one, the top of the line, fresh whole blood, right? So that's what you get in the military. You get walk-in donors, you have a trauma, you activate, everyone's Blood, cross, everybody, blood is we typed. We know everybody's stuff. Everyone's typed. Everyone's tested. You get fresh whole blood. That is superior to anything else. After that comes 
liquid, never frozen plasma. So we know that freezing plasma and thawing it definitely degrades a significant amount of its, of its proteins. Now we do it for storage purposes and transport purposes. Um, um, but liquid, never frozen plasma is definitely better. That's what a lot of, again, a lot of high volume places have that. Um, after that comes all the cold stored products. Um, so your PRBCs, your froze, fresh frozen plasma, your platelets, whether cold, now we have, you know, we're starting to see more work on um, cold stored platelets um, and then cryo as, a, as an adjunct later on, not in the initial resuscitation. So administering those products, oh, and then uh, cold whole blood is equivalent, in my opinion, to balanced resuscitation. There are more micronutrients and things and proteins and things that are not definitely, you know, quantifiable in terms of their effect, but there seems to be some benefit. I think it's just more volume is the benefit of whole blood. Um, so again, we're seeing that more and more in civilian trauma, more and more centers are carrying it, using it as their first line in resuscitation. Um, and more studies are coming out about that, showing its, its use. Um, so yeah, I think it's very important to administer plasma very early on and there's a very simple solution for all of this. The storage, the cost, the thawing time, all of this can be solved with dried plasma. Something that we don't actually have, unfortunately, but is something used in other places in the world and would, is, is excellent because you can carry it in any ambulance at Anywhere. ambient temperature. There's a lot of really great studies. I'll I'm with you. I wish we got it too. I didn't really understand it until about a year ago. And I spent some time doing personal research and trying to figure it out. And I was like, why can't we get that? Yeah. Because that would be awesome on every truck, everywhere, every, you could have it in a backpack, you could carry it all over the place. It's absolutely brilliant. It, it, I wrote a book chapter about it and that's how I learned about it. And I had no idea about any of it and pretty much read every article that was published about it. And it's just incredible what you can achieve with it. It's definitely inferior to liquid, never frozen plasma. It's slightly inferior to fresh frozen plasma. The freeze drying process does degrade some factors, but as a volume expander, especially to avoid crystalloid, I mean, you completely eliminate the argument of resources and difficulty of carrying those products in austere environments. Uh, and rural environments oh, yeah. because it can be on any ambulance it can be in any trauma bay just sitting in a fridge or even on the shelf it's very stable for a very long time um and it's very very easy to reconstitute you just have a vial of powder that you put in 256 cc's of fluids or d5 water or anything and you just push it in and it's definitely way way better and I think if properly studied can be shown to, to have a significant difference in, in rural trauma places that don't have the capability of blood banking. Um, so but let me ask you all this. To kind of tie the first two things we've talked about together. So we talked about permissive hypotension. We've talked about balanced resuscitation. And, and you keep using the term volume expander. And I think that that is also where maybe even the biggest uh, misconception, everything we're gonna talk about today is that, okay, I think people in general understand volume expansion is important. 
but they don't understand what you're using for volume expansion. And so that you, we keep talking about crystalloid. Um, and so, you know, you may get the question of, oh, well, I have a trauma patient. They're 60 over 40. They're tachycardic to 130. And um, my nurse tells me it's going to be 20 minutes before they have blood ready. And I feel like that is where, um, you know, maybe the old school thought is, well, let's give them crystalloid for volume expansion while we're waiting. Or maybe maybe not blood at all. Um, and so I think maybe that's a lot of where the misconception comes because I think people in general understand volume expansion. Um, and so I think that's where kind of bridging permissive hypotension plus balanced resuscitation probably comes in with avoiding, avoiding crystalloid. So I'm going to take you back, way back, all right, way, way back to Dr. Cannon, who is one of the fathers of resuscitation, right? He was an anesthesiologist, I want to say World War I? World War I. And what did he say? And his quote was so misunderstood that it caused the overuse of crystalloid for 20, 30 years afterwards, right? He said, and I'm paraphrasing, the use of saline or the use of fluids is acceptable while waiting for blood, right? Understanding that blood products were superior, his, he only offered using crystalloid until blood is available. And that was misconstrued and then misinterpreted and then crystalloid became the mainstay for a very long time of resuscitating trauma patients, right? And we'll get to that in the next point. Um, but going back to your point, if you're gonna apply that principle, yes, to answer your question, if blood is on the way, right? That's the most important part, is not that I have no blood, blood is on the way, right? I'm gonna expedite that as much as possible. I'm gonna practice permissive hypotension, I'm going to understand what my patient's physiology is doing. Are they hypotensive because there is ongoing bleeding? Okay, well, I definitely don't want to make it worse. If they're awake and talking to me, I'm doing nothing. I'm waiting, right? I'm making sure I'm giving calcium. I'm making sure I have vasopressin ready. And then when I'm giving volume as crystalloid, I'm giving very small aliquots at a time, right? 200, 250 cc's at a time and measuring their response. If you have no blood and your patient is actively bleeding, you're done. That's it. There is, there is no room for bridging them to anything else. If you can't, if they're going to require more than 500 cc's or a liter of, of crystalloid um, and you've done everything else, all the other adjuncts, and they're not within the hands of a surgeon and there's a blood bank, it, it's over. They're, there is no room for bridging them. Because once you've reached that level of, 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 of bleeding, that physiology is usually not reversible. And we see it all the time. We get these patients that have multiple pressors running. They've coded, had ACLS with pressors and epi and all these pro, you know fluids and things like that. And they get to us and yeah, they're alive and we operate on them. And then they die very quickly. Very awful deaths, coagulopathic, consume a lot of a lot of products, and it's just not reversible. At that point, the damage is done. So not to be, you know, too gloomy about it, but really there are patients you can't help. I mean, you just, it's just a, a fact. Your resources are gonna be limited and you have to help who you can help. 
Uh, but you're definitely hurting patients if you give lots of crystalloids. So it used to be two liters for every trauma patient, right? Yep. First line every of ATLS. Everybody gets two liters. Good. Everyone. Everyone, right? Why? And that was the answer on the boards, on the surgery, general surgery boards. That is what everyone was taught to say. And that is what everyone got a huge check mark for and got applauded that that was the thing to do. Two large bore IVs, two liters of crystalloid. Yep. And don't forget the NG tube. There's an NG tube in there too. <laughs> <laughs> so we've learned that a lot of the things that we do without um, certain parameters that we're following are always going to be wrong. Anything you do, almost anything you do empirically without a parameter that you're following is eventually going to be proven wrong. Anything that we think is good, just based on our spidey senses, is not as always turns out to be wrong, always proven wrong, right? Um, you, we have a lot of examples in that of that in medicine. So back to the crystalloid, you know, blood is on the way, surgeons on the way, um, helicopters on the way, they have blood. The patient is like you said, 60 over 30, was talking to me five minutes ago, now getting really confused and lethargic. I'm gonna give a very, very small bolus just to support them while doing all the other adjuncts. I'm warming them giving them calcium, I'm giving them everything to support them and, and decrease the amount of crystalloid that I'm gonna give it, okay? Um, I just wanna make it known, it's recorded that he said he was gonna give crystalloid. In that, in that, <laughs> in that situation, yeah. It's a yes. very extreme in situation. situation. I've, I've, I've given a lot of, a lot of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanna bring up real quick, we keep talking about calcium. So when we're talking about calcium, uh, there's two different types. There's chloride and gluconate. Doesn't matter to me, honestly, which one you get your hands on. Preferably, it's gluconate. If they're sitting there talking to you awake and everything's hunky-dory, stick with gluconate. If they're in extremis, think about calcium chloride is my personal way I think of it. Um, it's a lot more, a whole lot more concentrated if you use chloride than obviously gluconate. Be careful with it from the street side of the street. You don't want to, if they've got some kind of cardiac issue underlying, don't throw them in a VTAC. Don't give it to them. Don't slam it to them it's not somebody in arrest um but make sure you give it that's a lot some people think it's kind of we're talking about dogma but think about voodoo medicine almost and it's like hey why are you giving somebody calcium they're sitting there talking yeah but i'm only got four products or i've only got this x number of stuff i'm trying to maintain so we're talking about adjuncts use your adjuncts wisely um and use them effectively well and i think that's a good point we always try on these podcasts to talk about little things like a lot of the stuff we're talking about is maybe a little more advanced than people are used to. And, um, but another simple thing going on the train of simple things like calcium, um, we talked about earlier about using warmed products, not just products, but your patient, right? So especially with these long transport times, I think one thing we are good at, uh, in pre-hospital care, emergency medicine, trauma surgery is we're real good at ABCDEs, right? And one of those is exposure, right? So it's good. Like, you come to a rural hospital, you know, the provider or EMS people are real good about let's cut the shirt off, let's cut everything off, let's see where their injuries are. But what does that leave your patient most of the time? Yep. Lying naked on the bed uh, in a probably air-conditioned room. Mm -hmm. um, that le then leads to that way uh, in a transport time, et cetera. You know, I, we've done a lot of stations together and, or uh, even gone to the OR, and the first thing he says is turn the heat up. Um, and so I think – that's another little thing to do, right? Everywhere's got a bear hugger. Everywhere's got warm blankets. Something simple 
um, that you can do yeah. that I feel like gets lost even – I mean, it, it uh, are, I can't tell you how many times yeah. I left the OR and we get to the ICU and the patient's temp is in the 80s. And yes. then we're putting in warming catheters and we're right. still battling their coagulopathy. It's all about the little things, right? Everyone can be big dog, giving massive transfusion, doing thoracotomies at the roadside, putting patients on ECMO. All of that is completely useless if you don't focus on the small details. Right? It's those small details that build up, that add up, right? Your patient's a little hypoglycemic, uh, sorry, hypocalcemic. They are a little hypothermic. They've bled a little bit, right? 20-year-old may be okay with it. They're fine. They'll compensate. 80-year-old, suddenly now you're doing chest compressions on them mm -hmm. because they had arrhythmia because they were so cold and hypocalcemic. Or, um, you know, they've not able to be tachycardic because they're on beta blocker and they just, you know, have the syncopal episode. So those little things add up and the downstream effect of them is, is, is extremely bad because we immediately take out big guns to treat those things and, and we forget the basics. It's not about, it's not about you. It's about the patient in front of you. And side note, it's pretty funny for me. A lot of our uh, pilots, when they first come to us, they're like, you want me to turn the heat on in August? Yeah. Yeah. I want you to turn the heat on. But, I, I don't, it ain't about me. It's about the person in front of oh, me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just one example of, of one of the things that one of my pet peeves also um, in the trauma bay is we get a patient with really bad blunt trauma with obvious signs of head injury. And the first thing people yell is mannitol. I'm like, how about we finish our primary survey? Why don't we get a blood pressure? <laughs> Why don't we get some blankets on them? You have no evidence. We're not talking about someone with a blown pupil, right? And just somebody that's altered, who's, who's who's bradycardic and hypertensive. They're just intubated. They have some facial abrasions. What are their big scalp thing? The first thing you hear someone yell is mannitol, and it drives me nuts. <laughs> Think but about again, it's just thinking about all those big things, especially for trainees. This is very important because they're thinking of the the final diagnosis right their 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 brain is 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 calibrated to always interpret the situation to give a final answer because that's your you know you're always multiple choice multiple choice you're just kind of trying to squeeze down all the information to give a final answer and that's the diagnosis you know right it's like we're diagnosing people with neurogenic shock before we even finish our 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 assessment and it's like no it's not about that just go through it same way every single time take your time recognize that the spinal cord injury is not going to kill them right now right let's make sure they're not bleeding to death let's make sure they have an airway and then we can have Just some that fun. grade three liver lack that popped up when you didn't oh well, we don't need to do it fast it's got to be neurogenic shock it's yeah. not this that and area and then you're yeah. like what in the world i've seen that before mm -hmm. um i can't tell you how many times i've seen that one but they take your time like you said and use use everything to your advantage of have a clear thought process, go through it, say, hey, I'm going to do this, 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 the same way every time, and you'll never skip a step. Mm -hmm. So definitely. One, uh, one, one thing to lead on to is we're talking about, talking about adjuncts. So another common misconception is vasopressors and trauma. Oh, well, it's a trauma patient. We can't give them vasopressors. They... They have to have 
yeah, blood's a gold standard. We've talked about that for a minute now, but sometimes you don't have enough blood or you don't have enough, pro you don't have enough of whatever you need. You have to kind of bridge to get there, keep them alive, maintain perfusion. You don't want them to go into rest. Mm -hmm. Um, so we got to go to vasopressors. We've mentioned it, vasopressin. I think it's everybody's in this, in this conversation's favorite little drug. Um, how do you use it? When do you pull the trigger? That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think in general, the first thought of that no vasopressors in trauma is not necessarily a bad thought in the sense of your standard epi, nor epi, those things. Um, but vasopressin um, it can be really helpful uh, for several reasons. One, uh, trauma patients uh, have been found that they just have a natural vasopressin deficiency. Um, and uh, the other, other big thing is, like you said, it's going to buy you time um, to getting to source control or uh, m more blood products or, or whatever the case may be. Um, I think it's probably a case by case scenario. Um, you know, anytime that we're starting to give multiple products, um, and requiring to continue to give more, um, then, then vasopressins is, is kind of pulling the trigger. Um, especially even if you have a very, very sick patient who is maybe, um, an ex very extremist or, uh, you know, uh, peri-arrest, um, not just giving a vasopressin infusion, you can use push dose vasopressin, um, you know, grab it, push four units, um, to help. Um, so I, I think pretty early, I guess is probably the, the short answer in conjunction with calcium and, and products as well. Let me blow your mind for a second. Vasopressin is not a vasopressor. All right, so I think that's that's an important distinction. Don't think of vasopressin as a presser. And we don't treat it as a presser, right? We don't titrate it. We don't have certain goals to achieve with it. So it is not a presser, right? It is a physiologic replacement of something they that the trauma patient depletes early on because of their response to trauma, right? So we're not doing anything supra-physiologic. We're just repleting what they have lost, causing them to be vasoplegic or have a less than adequate response of vasoconstriction to their shock, okay? Um, so everything you said, I agree with. Use it, use it pretty early on. If, if, if the patient smells like they're going to be needing a lot of product, you can use it very early on. Um, and yeah, if they come to you, you're, you know, you're just starting their resuscitation, they're in severe shock, and you know they've bled a lot, just go ahead and give it. Um, if you get to them early on and you, you're just kind of slowly giving them products, um, the study was, you know, after four units of product is when you start thinking about it. Um, and yeah, you start with a bolus of four units, um, and then you start a drip 0.04. Um, that's really how I use it. Um, again, I don't think you can ever be wrong using it. Um, I'll be careful about using it in, in more frequent pushes because um, it can definitely cause a lot of ischemia if given, if given in high doses. You know, we're not talking about 40 units, code dose, vasopressin, uh, but it can add up without noticing. So um, yeah, from that regard, vasopressin is an adjunct. It's supporting physiology. It's not a vasopressor. Now, other pressors becomes very tricky. The rule is no pressors. Right, that's the simple rule. Um, what does that mean? It means that if you are 
in shock, if you are hypotensive, um, and you know the patient has lost volume, you have to be given volume back, right? So the only time you would use vasopressors is in the case of completely ruled out hemorrhage, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, and there is significant evidence of a spinal cord injury, and we're treating spinal cord injury for neurogenic shock. That's that's a time where vasopressors are appropriate. Um, other kind of niche um, or you know less less frequent or less common uh, scenarios. Again, the first rule is rule out hemorrhage. Once you've ruled out hemorrhage and established euvolemia, right? Then you start thinking about your other shock types. You know, yes, seven-year-old grandma could have had an MI and then crash her car into a pole, right? Um, a lot of times in those cases, you can see that the mechanism doesn't really correlate with how sick the patient is. Um, but again, first thing you do is give blood products, rule out hemorrhage, establish euvolemia, and then treat them. Because the treatment for all t t shock types is exactly the same in the beginning, right? It's always gonna be volume. You're never gonna hurt someone by giving them um, volume, especially blood products. You're only gonna harm ones that are bleeding. Um, again, we're thinking about what can I prevent, right? If they're in massive cardiogenic shock, you're not going to give them milrinone on the helicopter. I mean, you might. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as common as but, everybody thinks. But yes. if it's a trauma patient, that's not what you, I don't want you right. to be thinking that, right? You have to go through the steps, give product, rule out hemorrhage, establish euvolemia, and then go through your shock differential based on the mechanism and the patient, right? Um, we recently had a patient, very young, um, had a pretty significant um, MVC, and went to an outside hospital, um, was was pretty stable there, uh, got an EKG, had a STEMI. And so, you know, we, we knew it was most likely secondary to her blunt trauma. Um, by the time she got to us, she was hypotensive. She was scanned over there and she had a known liver and splenic injury. They were lower grade. So what do you do there, right? Do you give her a bunch of volume or do you let her go to the cath lab first or? Yeah, we went to the OR. Right, you have to you have to just take it off the table. She didn't have a ton of blood in her abdomen. We gave her product, obviously. She didn't have a ton of blood. She did have a positive fast in the trauma bay, so there was at least five hundred in there. That's enough, yeah. you know, to make you hypotensive. We took the spleen out. We fixed the liver. Now we can treat her for cardiogenic issues, right? Um, so that, that that becomes very important um, to recognize. And so, in terms of arrest. If your patient arrested from blood loss, there's no rule for, no room for oppressors, right? Um, the outcomes of traumatic arrest are extremely poor. And we have to be uh, cognizant of that. And we have to have enough knowledge about it to not feel bad about stopping early in those situations. I know it's very difficult um, to do, especially when it's a young patient. Um, and especially when you're the first responder, when you have very little information, but we have to think of trauma patients at, in terms of their arrest as reversible and irreversible. And the irreversible deaths, bringing those back, as we mentioned before, will consume a lot of resources, cause a lot of potential harm to the patient, cause a lot of grief for the family and not be fruitful. Reversible causes is what you base your resuscitation on, right? right. So you, you 
focus on hypoxia, hypovolemia, and tension physiology as causes for reversible right. arrest. And you go that way, and that's how you're going to save way more patients than you will just artificially bring some back. Um, so instead of doing closed chest compressions and epi on a patient who has a tension pneumo, right? You have to decompress their chest. And so establishing an airway, two fingers in the chest, from about blunt trauma, right? Mm. Airway, two fingers in the chest, and volume if you have it. And that's it. If they don't come back with that, there's no coming back. They either have a devastating brain injury, devastating spinal cord injury, or blood enough to have already arrested. And there, again, there's no coming back from that. So, Somebody once told me one time, if you can't do it in 10 minutes, the you're you're just wasting stuff that you don't really need you don't have to restock it later so what's the point yeah um that's a really blunt way to put it but it stuck with me and i've in my years doing it it's true it's important i mean it, it it sounds terrible to say but the 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 amount of resources that you can consume um resuscitating someone that's non-salvageable is very significant I mean, simply just your time as a very, very precious resource. Your time, my time, his time, right? All three of us, um, whether I'm taking up time in the operating room, whether you're taking away the chopper from someone, from another transport that needs it, whether you're dragging him away from an, an MI pay or a stroke patient that, that needs attention. Right. Um, and not to say, I mean, my whole life is dedicated to helping trauma patients. But I have to also recognize that I can only help a certain number, right? And we're not talking about a mass casualty event, but it adds up. It adds up very quickly. Um, and especially in, when, you, when you start on about transport resources and blood and all these things. Um, and it's not to put any less value on those patients. It's just we know. We have very good evidence and this is not just me saying that it's it's not going to be survivable. It's back. It's back to I don't how many articles now. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. We're not just kind of being, you know, not willing to put in the effort. It's just we know that those patients just we can't help them, and it sucks and it's sad. But we have to recognize there are more patients we can't help. Definitely. So re reading back to to pressors, one thing I want to mention real quick with peds. Mm -hmm. So you can use vasopressin in kids too. That's a common misconception. Oh, it's you can only use again. We're talking about vasopressin really as an oppressor, which I completely agree with. I'm glad you said it, man. I was like, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping he's going to do it. Um, but vasopressin you can use in kids too. You can do 0.5 milli units per kilo per minute. Um, you can go up to three in certain GI cases. They use them to pick you, but don't forget that's an option too as well in kids. Um, that's something. Oh, it's adults only. You can't do it. To just throw that out the window. Kids are just small adults. You're going to say it. You knew you were going to say it. Um, <laughs> when it comes to trauma. When it comes to trauma, yes. I'd, I'll agree with you 100%. Um, congenital hearts, not so much. But the, the trauma stuff, it's all it's all the same. You're still going to fix the same big things. So don't get wrapped around the axle with them. Um, something else I want to bring up, we talk about... Now, let me just mention something about pressors. If you have to choose between pressors and crystalloid to bridge a patient, use pressors. I will forgive that. If you've given your 500 or a liter of crystalloid um, and the patient 
responded, but still kind of dripping down. You're on, you're requiring, you know, a small amount of lever fed um, just to keep them mentating or to keep that map, you know, hovering around 50 and the chopper is on the way with blood or the blood is coming from the blood bank. I'd rather you do that than give more crystalloid. Stay away from it. Just stay the problem is pressers, you know, pressers, uh, you know, whatever um, decrease in perfusion you're causing by using pressers in, in hypovolemia goes away as soon as you fix the hypovolemia. The crystalloid downstream effect stays with the patient. The third spacing is going to persist way longer than the uh, pressor's half-life is. Um, and that's the problem with, with the crystalloid. It, just to explain again why we hate crystalloid so much, it's not just that it's not blood. It's not just that it doesn't have any coagulation factors. It actually causes direct harm and that harm stays for a very long time. So when you third space, so when you have trauma, you have endothelial damage, those vessels become um, very permeable to everything. So your ba normal barrier that keeps liquid inside your uh, pipes goes away. So now you have holes in all your pipes and those that crystal is gonna go into the tissue, into the interstitium. It's gonna swell up the cells. It's gonna cause dysfunction of all your organs um, it's going to cause more swelling in any part that's been traumatized. So muscles, all these things. So it's going to affect your healing from your orthopedic surgery. It's going to affect your rate of kidney injury in the ICU. It's going to affect your um, length of staying on the ventilator. It's going to cause more brain swelling. It's going to cause all those downstream effects. Um, plus all the immediate effects of more acidity, diluting the factors, diluting the platelets, causing more... Um, artificial pressure increase that causes more bleeding and more clot dislodgement. Uh, something, remember, we're thinking definitive care, definitive resuscitation. It, you're not, we may not see it in an AR bay or a trauma bay, but I promise if you stick around in ICU 24 hours, you're going to see it. Um, and that's something in emergency medicine, we don't always get the privilege to go upstairs. I, I'm very fortunate. I work here. I get to go up there all the time. Um, but if you don't get to go up there to see a sick you patient, go see one and go up there and ask, hey, who got a bunch of crystalloid? You really don't have to ask much. You can just kind of walk around and see which one is swollen up like the Michelin man. I hate to use that analogy, but that's pretty much what it looks like to me. I mean, you're just everywhere. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about um, dogma that we used to go by, thankfully, this was right around the time that I started my training. So it was going, going away. Uh, but they used to say, you don't get well until you swell. Yep. So patients who are getting upwards of 10 liters of crystalloid within the first 24 hours, I mean, abdominal compartment syndrome and open abdomens were an epidemic for sure. The highest number of cases logged by general surgery residents for the longest time were abdominal washout take backs. They would just keep washing out these patients and keep them open, and then they can't close them because of all the swelling. They all got... They're taking the sepsis data using that 30 cc's per kilo and yeah. flooding everybody with it. And it yeah. Was just, I don't know if you, you've probably never seen it, oh yeah. but you might have seen the computers mm -hmm. that guided the resuscitation where you just plug in the patient's numbers and then it gives you an amount of crystalloid <laughs> to give. Yep. It's ridiculous. Um, and yeah, patients got ton of crystalloid, so much crystalloid. And then we're going to change. I mean, don't be wrong. I like plasma light and LR, but I don't like saline every day of the week. But they were, then they started experimenting with different things and this, that, and the other, and which is better. And then yeah. that's just, 
I mean, I can't tell you the, the number of times that I've had to skin graft someone's abdomen um, that was a trauma patient, I can count on one hand now. So we're very lucky that to have shifted from away from that practice. That brings up something I, I've never actually asked you this before. What's your thoughts on head starch? It's poison. Yeah, it, it's, it's been shown to be um, associated with significant kidney injury. So um, there was all that big push about, hey, we're going to try to start using it in trauma, this, that, and the other, but I've never. No. So um, yeah. wanted to. Also, albumin is, yeah. is, is, is trash. Albumin is just sal expensive saline. <laughs> just FYI. Love it. Yeah. You're hitting all my things. <laughs> I like um, Just throw one more out there. I, I know we've been going for a minute, but how about bicarb? They fill a bicarb. Yeah, so... Um, trying to combat acidosis. You know, we're trying to hit the diamond. Let's absolutely. I think in, in patients who are in extreme shock, again, we're talking ones that are peri-arrest or have arrested, um, I think it's reasonable to use as an adjunct, and it is part of my traumatic arrest algorithm um, because I'm assuming those patients are acidotic beyond acceptable physiologic limits. So we're talking less than 7.1, less than seven, right? Um, in those cases, I think if your patient's about to arrest or if, if, if they have arrested, it's very reasonable to use. Um, I would never use it to correct just the pH in a patient that I'm actively resuscitating. Um, I would use it after I have established hemorrhage control. Um, and again, they have severe acidosis and are still having pressure requirement because of it. If I'm comfortable with my hemorrhage control and my euvolemia and they're still having pressure requirements because of the dysfunction brought on by acidosis, I will use a drip until I can get them on a dialysis machine. Um, but uh, those are all um, kind of personal practices I've developed. They're not evidence-based. I will never fault someone for not following them. Uh, definitely don't use it unless absolutely necessary I, I wouldn't use it empirically on anyone that's not again peri-arrest or arrested or has a ph less than seven my personal thoughts are if you if you put somebody on pressure you're giving them blood obviously and our world like trying to get somebody to you or to to source control if i put them on pressors they're getting blood and my pressors are not effective and i've already given corrected their calcium make sure it's not ionized less than 0.6 or 0.7 and it's still not working i start thinking okay one per kilo of bicarb or try it and if nothing else it might help a little bit it's reasonable i think the effect that a lot of people see with bicarb administration is more because of the hypertonic bolus that we're giving with bicarb that transient increase in blood pressure and they're like oh see look because of their acidosis the pressures weren't working that's questionable it's not not really been shown uh not really proven in in studies uh to work that way um but I, I think it's 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 a pretty low risk thing. Um, uh, you know, again, I'm okay with it in those in those situations where you've really done everything else, and it's just not working. Trying it and seeing what happens is reasonable. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't want people to take away. Hey, let's go to some of the old school ACLS where what you know you walked in the door, you give them two calciums and two bicarbs, and then you start giving them. I wouldn't definitely not go that way with it, but. If you've tried all the other things, yeah. I think it's something you can always keep in your tool bag. Don't don't rule it all the way out. But the important takeaway I wanted you to say was it's not to correct a pH. Don't use it to correct a pH. So, yeah. um, 
guys, I appreciate you coming today. Thank you for this. It's been great. Um, really great. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so it. much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Us. So, Thanks. Hope you come back again. Will do for sure.